Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Blog Talk Radio and Progressive News Network. This is Brooke Hines. We have a little bit of a technical difficulty there. I wasn't hearing anything from the Blog Talk Radio side, so hopefully everything went off without a hitch with the music, uh, barring the fact that uh, I wasn't there. We'll try to regain the usual um, the uh, usual setup. Right now I'm calling in on a phone and uh, we'll uh, we'll try to switch over at some point. Uh, we've got a great show for you tonight. It is Sunday, April 5. It is day 23 into the quarantine here at Swampy J Studios. Um, I don't miss the outside world. I mean, in terms of my own personal uh, comfort and whatever, I am fine with this, but that is not what this is about. We are staying home, we are social distancing, and we are doing everything we can so that people don't get sick and die. And we have to keep in mind that that is what is on the other side of uh, of all of this that we're doing. It's um, It's not just about watching Netflix. It's not just about being cooped up. It's, you know... And I think a lot of us, uh, especially on the left, are aware of some of the things that are, you know, some of the more darker realities that could be facing us. Donald Trump this week said that he expected around 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. And what bothers me about that statement is that it's coming from Donald Trump. And so if Donald Trump is saying that we're looking at 100,000 deaths, I'm thinking that that number is lowballed. And I've seen other numbers from other sources that have a much darker scenario that, that could happen. We've talked here on the show about how all of the models that I've been looking at are showing that the best case scenario is that we can uh, – ease some of our social distancing in summertime and not just summertime, but late summertime. And, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. You know, already I'm, you know, personally, and I think a lot of other people are, are in the same boat. We are in the midst of doing things like, pushing appointments ahead in time. We are um, uh, we're canceling some services 
you know, where 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 people come to the house and do stuff. Uh, it's it's really sad. I know that that myself and my husband have a lot of things that we do every month with. Uh, independent contractors and small business folks and we had to stop doing a lot of it because of the quarantine and and honest to god it felt really awful having to do that it felt like I was having to lay people off Um, we honest to goodness we would still be uh, using all of these services if we possibly could like I've said before I've got a compromised immune system. It's completely unpredictable. Uh, generally what happens is if I catch something, I catch it really, really bad, uh, which is that uh, cytokine storm, you know, that, that we talk about with uh, different kinds of viruses where my body like overreacts. And what is a problem with COVID-19 is that it's it's not really the flu. It's, it, it's a, a respiratory virus and the way that people get sick is it's your body responding to the virus it's not the virus getting in there like a bacteria and reproducing and taking over it's it's the, the damage that's being done ironically is being done by your own body in trying to fight it off and so it overcompensates or it compensates in a way that is not overall healthy for um for the person. That is something that I'm really prone to. I'm also on the other side. I'm uh, I'm also one of those people who can catch something, get super, super sick, and then be over it in 24 hours. So, you know, it's the way that I look at it is it, it, it's a crapshoot. You have no idea what it's going to be like catching us. So I'm trying not to catch it. Um, if I felt like I could possibly go out and go to the store and, you know, go to the drugstore and do the things that, you know, my my life is not that exciting or, you know, <laughs> not like it used to be. I'm not missing uh, being in bars and seeing bands. Let's put it that way. Uh, honestly, I just miss living without the fear. You know, that's, that's all, that's all I'm, I'm, looking forward to, to to this being over with. Uh, living without the fear, living in a in, in a functioning economy, and hopefully uh, being part of a of a political uh, 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 situation in the United States that doesn't involve the uh, idiocy that that we see now. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope for that, but um, but, you know, who knows? Who knows what, what could happen? We're going to talk a, a little bit about that tonight. Um, we've, got, we've got a good show. So, so we're talking about not dying for Wall Street. This uh, show theme was provided to me by Janine Maloff. Not necessarily provided, but it was suggested that that would be her reporting for the week. And, you know, Janine comes on at 8.30 and does her justice report. And when she said that she was looking at not dying for Wall Street, I thought, you know what, that is pretty much going to be the same stuff that I'm going to talk about. So let's just uh, 
uh, create the show around that, that central theme. So that's pretty much what we've done. We've got really good friend of the show, Cardit Krishnayer, calling in at 7.30 to talk about uh, the historic and political context for uh, fighting this pandemic here in Florida and in the larger, in the nationwide, uh, just generally larger context. We also have Rick Spizak, who's reporting still from the road. Rick Spizak is going to interview longtime friend of the show, Wendy Lynn Lee, on uh, the pedagogy of pandemics. So Wendy Lynn Lee is a philosophy professor, and there's, uh, of course, life in a uh, college, in a college town and life in college in general is just as affected as it is for the rest of us. So let's see what uh, Wendy has to say about how that's going from her point of view and from her framework. And I can't wait to hear that. I will put that on at the top of the hour at 8 o'clock. So look out for that. Uh, So I've got a few stories to share. Then we'll go to Cardick. Then we'll go to Rick with Wendy Lynn Lee. And finally, Janine Moloff at 8.30. So what I wanted to talk to you guys about, let me see if I can bring this up. What I wanted to talk to you guys about is that I don't have a lot of time. So I'm not going to get all sprawling with this like I have in past weeks. But we've got a couple of really important stories that happened this week that I want to talk about. And I, I want to go through this fairly quickly so that we can get to Cardiac at 730. Now, the first one I want to mention is I want to men- mention this partly as read it because I think it's good, but also I want you to read it critically because I don't entirely agree with what's going on here. And this is John Schwartz's piece in The Intercept, which is entitled, The Democratic Party Must Harness the Legitimate Rage of Americans. Otherwise, the right will use it with horrifying results. Now, uh, let me lay out a little bit of what he's doing in this article because I think there's, there's some, some important stuff in here. Uh, he says, the political possibilities of this moment are different than anything we have ever experienced. We possess a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make the United States a more humane country. But if we fail to seize it, we will face mortal danger from the right. I feel like that paragraph could have been written four or five years ago. It could have been written eight years ago. We have been looking at this particular scenario. This is my criticism. We've been looking at this particular scenario for quite some time, and it's frankly why Donald Trump is in office right now. But what I love about what John Schwartz does in this is he talks about uh, John Steinbeck's 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath, and he brings that to bear in this uh pandemic situation. And so he says, not long from now, almost everybody will have a family member or friend who died of COVID-19, many of them suffocating in isolation wards with insufficient treatment, perhaps deprived of a ventilator that would have saved their lives. 
huge swaths of the country are plummeting into desperate penury, penury, I don't know how to pronounce that, even as they witness large corporations unlock the U.S. Treasury to help themselves to everything inside. Um, Nice prose there. Uh, It's a, a, a nice way of saying, yeah, we're all economically, financially screwed right now. People are losing their, uh, they're being kicked out of their homes as renters. People are looking at foreclosure in a, in a longer term scenario. I don't know how many months that's going to take for that to unroll or to unravel, but we're looking at some pretty grim uh, possibilities uh, if this quarantine goes on throughout the summer. It's it's bad now. We had what was it? Seven 700,000 new unemployment claims or was it 7 million? Anyway, we we had a huge jump and I have a listener saying Penori. Penori. Thank you. Penori listener. <laughs> Penori. So um uh, penury, okay. Uh, huge swaths of the country are plummeting into desperate penury, even while as they witness large corporations unlock the U.S. Treasury and help themselves to everything inside. So Schwartz moves from there into the Grapes of Wrath, and he, he talks about how it describes a similar moment in the Grapes Depression when people starved, even as orchards of fruit were burned to make the food that remained more profitable. Now, we're seeing this right now. There was a lot of reporting this week on dairy farmers having to uh, empty the transport vehicles, you know, the, the, the tanks that, that carry milk, having to empty them into, into the drain. And that's just horrific. Uh, especially when there's so many people who are um, who don't have enough to eat, you know. And and instead of figuring out ways to take care of people, what we're doing is we're figuring out ways to make sure that uh, corporations are fleecing us blind, uh, robbing us blind, or just fleecing us, or both. I think fleecing us blind would be like both of those together. Uh, John Steinbeck's novel, uh, he has a quote here, quote, men with hoses squirt kerosene on the oranges and they are angry at, at the crime, angry at the people who have come to take the fruit. There is a crime here that goes beyond denunciation. There is a sorrow here that weeping cannot symbolize. There is a failure here that topples all our success. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for vintage. So we're building up a debt. What Steinbeck's discussing here is building up a, uh, an emotional debt. What John Schwartz wants to draw our attention to is the fact that we're building up an emotional and political debt by not addressing uh, any of this stuff um, prior to 
Donald Trump taking office. Had this stuff been addressed, it is my criticism that uh, we might not have elected somebody like Donald Trump. Uh, Bringing this into the current time, into the current day, we're about to live this again, John Schwartz writes, in more sophisticated ways. At least there's that, which we're going to be more sophisticated about it. Then it was fruit being incinerated so no one could eat it. Now it's cheap ventilators that were never built because a company called Covidine, Covidian, worried they would compete with their most expensive models. So they had a couple different models. The ventilators that would be saving people's lives were not produced because the company that apparently has a monopoly on ventilators decided that, oh, we just won't produce these because we've got these more expensive ones, and if nobody buys the expensive ones, then oh well, because that's what we want people to buy. Um, and the same is going on with the N95 masks that, that people made, uh, that everyone's been talking about. These are the masks that are ideal for this situation, and no one can get them because the uh, Defense Production Act was not um, deployed uh, and, uh, until much too late. And what's been ordered through the Defense uh, Production Act, as I understand it now, uh, we might start to see the delivery of some of these masks at the end of April. You know, so, so you've got all of your first, uh, your, your frontline people, your emergency room doctors and nurses and people who are seeing the most sick people we're seeing them become sick and some of them actually die because they don't have uh, personal protection equipment, the PPEs that you keep talking about. Uh, but there's also something else, and that's that um, tens of thousands of hospital beds in New York and New Jersey uh, were eliminated in the last few years uh, because the surplus capacity cost money. And some of those hospitals were then turned into luxury condos. Yay. Thanks to Bloomberg. That was part of, uh, you know, Bloomberg's whole thing was, uh, you know, we're a luxury city for luxury people who deserve luxury condos. And sure, we can use hospitals for that because that makes total sense. Um, John Schwartz warns us that if we don't find a, a way to, uh, out of where we're at right now, if we don't find a way out of this ambient rage that everyone is feeling right now on the left, if we don't find a way to channel that, then what's going to happen is that the right uh, seems to be really, really good at channeling this. And as we saw in the last century, uh, you know, you can either organize unions, you can do a new deal, you can try to uh, uh, create a, a new middle class. You, you can do the right things or you can ignore. You can do like Germany, Italy, and Japan did and uh, let the fury be organized by fascists and directed at innocent people. And, you know, I think Schwartz for producing this piece. Because I think if you read it in one way, um, you know, if you read it with your rose-colored glasses on, you are reading something that is 
that should be um, a call to arms. It should be uh, like darn tootin', he's right, and we need to band together, and we need to make sure that we get a, a new new deal, and we need another Franklin Roosevelt. But at the same time, we live in a period where uh, anybody who comes close to doing anything for the middle class, like Bernie Sanders, is uh, is attacked. Bernie Sanders becomes the villain of the Democratic Party. And now we're seeing, and I think that this is quite um, stupid, actually, uh, now some alternative media folks, like Jimmy Dore, for instance, are looking, as they cast about looking for someone to blame, the person that they're blaming now and telling some pretty honking lies to get there are uh, they're trying to blame Bernie Sanders. Is that Bernie Sanders is responsible for where we're at right now. Um, if you subscribe to Jimmy Dore's show, as I do, uh, and, and you get his, his alerts when he puts up a new show, you've seen in the last couple of days he's gone out there to attack um, Bernie Sanders, and he claims that, that, and the show claims that they're agitating against uh, uh, Bernie Sanders because they think that that's the best way to actually mobilize people and get things done. In the context of there being 1,800 delegates still to be won in this election, I don't think that this is a very good use of time, and I think that that at a time when a, a lot of the Bernie campaign and the supporters and the volunteers are already feeling um, defeated because all of the mainstream media has been piling on Bernie now for months and months and months and months. He's never gotten any kind of fair shake in the mainstream media. Uh, now you've got the left media piling on him. And I think it's, it, it's not deserved. Now, specifically what, is being found fault with is that Bernie Sanders and Sandria Ocasio-Cortez, so Bernie in the Senate, uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez in the House, had a lot of criticism for the what we're calling the stimulus bill, which is the big giveaway to the um, uh, corporate interests in the name of the pandemic. Uh, that somehow they didn't single-handedly uh, stop what was happening or put their foot down or hold up the bill and grandstand on it. Like, none of that happened. And I'm not ready to criticize our allies for for that stimulus bill because, A, we're not in the majority in the Senate, and, it, and it's not like, um, you know, Bernie Sanders had a – you know, any of the shit liberty behind him in trying to push what, what, what he was pushing. He was able to get uh, unemployment at 100%, and we were able to, you know, get at least one $1,200 check out of the fucking treasury, and there's a promise to go back. Now, I think 
that it would have been politically a huge mistake for anybody right now at this moment to try and hold up any kind of uh, relief that is going to regular people. And I think that that's, of course, the hurdle that was put up for Bernie Sanders. And so um, I think he was between a rock and a hard place, and I think that that um, our allies in the House and in the Senate did everything they could. And I think that for myself, I'm just going to reserve that anger for a time when I think that there's where it could be put to maybe better use. And here's the subtext. Here's what nobody is saying. And I'm afraid that this is what AOC and Bernie have been dealing with for the last week. Our numbers, projections of people dying and of jobs being lost that we can't fully imagine right now. So, if Donald Trump, you know, I started out talking about how Donald Trump said that uh, 100,000 uh, people are expected to die in the next couple of months, and that I think that that's probably sugar-coated. I'm wondering what the numbers are that AOC and Bernie Sanders are getting. I wonder what people are talking about behind the scenes, you know, the people who, um, you know, work on compliance level with hospitals and, you know, people who are doing long-term global supply chain planning and so on and so forth. I think that they're looking at a different set of facts than we are. I don't think that we're getting the whole story. Um, Now, none of that is to say that I wouldn't, um, you know, turn around and stab my allies in the back like Jimmy Dore is doing, you know, sure. But just give it a few more weeks before you actually, like, just, uh, you know, stick that knife in and twist it around and then pour some salt in it. Maybe, maybe, just maybe now would be a good time to, uh, to work with the movement to push it in a direction that you would like it to go. And obviously what Jimmy Dore would like to see is a rent strike and some organizing coming out of the campaign. They can't, listen, Bernie's campaign has already been doing uh, mutual aid, using his, his contacts and using the campaign. They're already doing that. So it's really kind of gross to criticize them on, on, that, on that front. But, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, opposed in theory to taking these guys, you know, to task. I just don't think that right now during the pandemic is is fair, and I don't think that it's uh, productive at all right right now. But give it a week, you know, give it a week, see how this actually shakes out. Maybe get some more information, and you know, then take a swat at it. You know, that's that's all I'm saying. And, and you know, the moment that, that Bernie starts telling us to vote for Biden, then, of course, uh, I'm out of here, and so is 98% of everybody else. But I don't think that that's a, a really good way to go right now. Uh, and let's also remember that, that, you know, Bernie Sanders is the one who has been riding Amazon's ass now for years. It's because of Bernie Sanders that, that Amazon – 
was, uh, you know, had to raise their wages and had to make some concessions with regard to um, employee safety and so on and so forth. So right now, we are, uh, there's a story that I wanted to share with you. I won't have a lot of time to go into it, but Vice, Vice did a piece uh, on a leaked memo detailing a plan to smear a fired warehouse organizer. They wanted to smear him as not smart and art- articulate. And this is a, a former Obama spokesperson, Jay Carney, who is now global corporate affairs poobah, at, at Amazon, you know, because that's where all the Obama people went. They all went to work for, like, Amazon and Uber and all of these, you know, really horrible technocratic uh, organizations. And uh, so so the memo, the least memo said uh, of Christian, Christian Smalls, who was organizing a uh, – um, He's organizing an action because the conditions within the warehouse were exposing the workers and are exposing the workers to COVID. And so the, the memo read, quote, he's not smart or articulate, and to the extent the press wants to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than simply explaining for the umpteenth time how we're trying to protect workers because workers are so tired of hearing about being protected during a global pandemic. Um, Amazon is trash. Bernie Sanders is one of the few people who have actually expended any political capital to do anything about it. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's see how this goes. Things that we have in front of us are a general strike, and uh, uh, I'm seeing stories about frontline workers like emergency room doctors and nurses who are actually having their salaries slashed right now during the pandemic while they're risking their lives. And their, their, their salaries are being slashed because hospitals are supposedly making less money because they don't have all the elective surgery and all of that other stuff uh, going on right now. So, you know, they don't want uh, different kinds of sick people, you know, in the hospital. They're moving to moving them to other places so that um, big hospitals can take care of more COVID patients, which I think is the right thing to do. What else are you going to do? Uh, but what's wrong is that these very same workers right now are being, um, they're having their salaries slashed and the healthcare companies that manage the stores, all of the stores, the hospitals are, um, squeezing them for, uh, for concessions during this. So screw hazard pay. Through uh, you know treating workers right, these are people who don't have personal protective gear, the PPEs, the masks, and the um, and the gowns. There are uh, plenty of doctors are wearing garbage bags and uh, forming all of these do-it-yourself ways of protecting, creating protective devices. Uh, it, it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful. Uh, so. If we see a general strike, 
I wonder, number one, if it's going to be called a general strike. I think that what we're going to see most likely is we're just going to start seeing people not show up and not do these jobs. And it might not be organized in a way that uh, you can carry a big, easily carry a big banner over it and say, this is a general strike. I think what we're going to see more likely is people making very difficult decisions in order to protect themselves and to protect their families. And they might not feel like going to work in an ER that is not protecting them and is slashing their uh, wages. That might not be a viable solution for some people. They could probably find someplace else to go. They could probably find something else to do where their salaries are not being slashed and where they have um, less exposure to dangerous pathogens. Uh, I think our challenge right now is to organize all of that into something that resembles a general strike. In other words, I think the general strike is already happening. It's already in effect. And we need to gather up the stories. We need to make sure that everybody uh, understands why it is that, you know, people are deciding not to go to work in dangerous places. Um, and it's going back to this Amazon story. This is where you can actually see where the rubber meets the road, where you can actually see the, the um, actions coming together because these are workers who are semi-organized already and who are already calling for uh, uh, concessions and are already being retaliated against. So if I were to make, uh, if I was to look into my crystal ball and make a prediction, I would say that if we see a general strike, it's going to come out of the culture of, like, fast food work and warehouse work and grocery stores. And then I think we're going to have to pull the professional class in the healthcare industries over to this other group that is more conversant with this kind of confrontation with the, with powers that be with their employers. We'll see. I could be totally wrong. That's just, that's just what I, uh, what I expect. All right, we've got a lot more to talk about. I am going to uh, – uh, I still have some stuff I want to talk about with the wonderful Whitney Webb piece in The Last American Vagabond. It's Whitney Webb and Raul Diego, a story called All Roads Lead to Dark Winter. I'm going to hold on to that for just a few because I've got Carter Krishnire on the line, and I'm wondering if he's there. Cardiff, are you there? I am. Oh, fabulous. It is so good to hear your voice. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I hope you're well, Brooke. I know uh, this is just a, a surreal time for everybody. I don't think that there's any any way psychologically to prepare for something like this. So uh, I know everybody is having just difficulty adjusting. Yeah, well, and I, I mentioned this at the top of the show, like, I'm really well adjusted to being a homebody and and, and, I'm, and none of this, 
I don't see any of this as a huge impingement on my freedom. Like I'm not like, oh, I wish I could go outside and play or I wish I could go to a store and go shopping. I am totally fine with laying low as long as it takes. But that's not the problem. The problem is uh, people need to make money and people need to not get sick and die. So, you know, I'm trying to, uh, you know, like like I've got the least of it. You know, I'm not sick and and I'm fine at home. But, God, there's so many people. There's 10 10 million people who lost their jobs this week. You know, for me personally, the only – infringement on my life has been that I can't go to go to go to public parks or go to nature stuff. Um, that's really kind of other than that, I'm basically a homebody, but people are losing their jobs. And I think people are panicking because it, it, it's not like uh, the Great Recession where you, 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 you sort of uh, your life, you were displaced because you didn't have a job or you lost a job, but you, you didn't feel like the trappings of life were changing and the scale of life was getting smaller. Uh, well, in fact, it probably was, let's be honest. But I, I think this time, the way people are reacting uh, is it, very, very different. And, and just talking to people all over uh, Europe and all over the U.S. That, that are just not quite sure how to adapt. That having been said, I think there's also um, a growing awareness of the kind of working conditions, and I, I just listened to your monologue on Amazon, the kind of working conditions that people are experiencing. And, and that's something that in this very kind of um, nasty individualistic culture, as I would call it, from 1980 on, from, from the election of Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in, in Great Britain, from that moment forward, uh, Anglo-American culture became very individualistic. It became in my view, much more selfish. It became much more me, me, me. Um, I, I don't want to make everything political, but cultural effect of Thatcher and Reagan that has, uh, has uh, infected the United States and infected the United Kingdom in, in, in how uh, they view any sort of, uh, quote, infringement of their liberty. And I agree with you. It's not an infringement of, of, of people's liberty. But that, as part of that selfishness, there has been a lack of awareness and understanding or care for what working class people go through, what working people go through in both uh, the UK and the US. And as you see um, the Labour Party become more a party of kind of um, uh, woke liberalism, right, in the UK, and and the Democratic Party become essentially a corporate party here in the United States, and the left uh, is so tied to those two political instruments, they've lost this awareness. So um, in listening to your monologue, and it's been an observation I've made for a few people, my hope is that this helps to revive people's understanding of what working people go through, how difficult it is. Uh, it, 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 I, I would recommend people reread uh, Upton Sinclair during this quarantine and things like that. And I, I spent some time at the beginning of the, this period, uh, so I guess about three weeks ago now, of, of rereading some and rewatching some things about Victorian England and the working conditions and realizing we're a lot closer to that now in 2020 than we were in the 1970s. Thing that comes out of this, hopefully it's that. There's more awareness of what working people go through. And um, the union movement in this country has become 
uh, an adjunct of the Democratic Party. That's why they don't stand up for a lot of these people in, in, in a lot of these cases. If you were to uh, suggest an Epson Sinclair uh, piece for, like, the average listener, what, what would you suggest? I, I think there's, there's a ton. Um, and I'd even go back and watch, uh, if you can find them on YouTube, uh, discussions about when he ran for governor of California, uh, historical uh, conversations. Uh-huh. But the jungle is obviously the most readily available and most uh, um, perceptive piece, I think. And kind of everything emanates from there. And ironically enough, I mean, that was the progressive era. And I think mm-hmm. the, our pre- only previous real experience in mass with a pandemic like this uh, in a time uh, of even though globalization wasn't quite in the early 1900s where it is today, uh, in, in a global world was um, in 1918, which is right in the middle of, of the progressive era. Although I, I have to say in the last uh, last two weeks, and, I, and people who follow me on Twitter have probably seen this. I uh, I started rereading uh, some of the history of the Roman Empire and the pandemics and the plague. And now newer historians, contemporary historians, have added climate change to that. And the and I think you and I talked about this before, um, whether on this show or in, in passing, uh, in process, I should say. Um, there are so many similarities between American imperial overreach and Roman imperial overreach, and so many similarities between, I, I know there's uh, 1,500 years between these two empires uh, potentially collapsing, or in the case of the U.S., potentially 1,500 years ago uh, uh, Rome collapsed. But um, there are so many similarities, and the pandemic thing is just the latest thing that um, I haven't factored in as a potential for the U.S. Um, that now... I'm, I'm busy rereading about the Antonine Plague and the Justinian Plague, um, the two real, the two plagues that did a number on Rome uh, a couple hundred years apart, but first weakened the empire and really kind of remembered it. Well, so do you think that we are on a trajectory of dismantling an empire? Do you see uh, correlations between uh, the plagues in Rome and what's going on now? Um, I think to a certain extent, because uh, all of these all all of these epidemics have some sort of uh, um, component of empire. Okay, so the Antonine Plague, uh, which happened during the uh, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, right at the end of the Pax Romana, and uh, those of you who've watched the Netflix series on on um, Emperor Commodus, who was Marcus Aurelius' son, saw that that was. I mean, they really kind of pinned the beginning of the decline of the Roman Empire to that, to his reign, which a lot of historians, uh, contemporary historians have moved it back uh, a bit, but um, that was always uh, starting with Gibbon in the 1700s, the thought was it started with Commodus. But what we now know about Marcus Aurelius' reign is because the Roman Empire had gone to war with Persia and had troops that went uh, to Persia and were fighting in Persia and Mesopotamia, they brought plague back to the empire. So Alexandria got the plague. Greece got the plague. Antioch got the plague, which is, plague, which is in modern-day Syria. Uh, Rome got the plague. The Iberian Peninsula got the plague. And uh, uh, Great Britain, uh, uh, York was uh, the primary city, or Londinium, which is London now, primary cities in, in Roman Britain. They got the plague. Um, and then the same thing with the Justinian plague, right? That's at a time when 
the Eastern Roman Empire is busy reconquering barbarian kingdoms that had uh, displaced the Western Roman Empire in the mid-500s. And this plague comes to Constantinople on a ship, which um, had probably come from China or India, because uh, they were, I think it was, a, it was a silk ship, so it probably came from India um, or China. And then the plague wipes out 40% of the population. Let's think about 1918, because I think that's obviously more relevant with the U.S. The reason why the and – I, and I, I hesitate to call it the Spanish flu because the Spanish – the term Spanish flu um, is in itself kind of a racist term, okay? It was, it was a strange right. H1N1 that came from Europe that very clearly came to the U.S., because we had troops fighting in World War One on the Western Front that picked it up in France, not in Spain, because Spain was neutral in that war. It became convenient to blame uh, called Spanish. Uh, the history is Spain was neutral um, in World War One. They reported cases earlier, right? They were more honest about what was going on. What we, what uh, the French and British governments and I'm sure the German and Austrian governments on the other side and the Turkish government on the other side were doing, were reporting uh, war deaths that were really deaths from this flu. Um, same thing probably with the U.S. government. So that's how it, we ended up getting uh, this horrible pandemic in 1918, which is the closest comparison in U.S. history to what we're going through now. It was because um, Woodrow Wilson, who of course was this um, great internationalist, decided to intervene in World War One. That is the uh, that is the reason. That is the uh, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe it would have gotten here anyway. But that is the reason. Um, and I want to talk about Florida and what happened in Florida during that flu um, in in, yeah. a, uh, in a few minutes. But but um, but where it's also similar to 2020 is that if we weren't this global empire involved in trading all over the place and and and, and and commerce, and, and quite frankly, you know, market capitalism. That's what it is. Uh, we, and we had not stretched our manufacturing um, chain and, and supply chain. And to this, I agree with Trump. I mean, even as a very liberal Democrat, I, I think Trump sounding the alarm about uh, us being so tied to China in terms of our uh, supply chain was absolutely right. He just said he hasn't done anything about it. He's talked about it, but he's not done anything about mm-hmm. it. Um, put us in this position where we're horribly vulnerable. And this is the same thing with European countries. I can give you, uh, I know there's been a lot of talk, particularly on CNN uh, the last few days about India, and India locking down completely. Um, and and, and uh, what's going to happen there because of, uh, uh, of the, the high population and uh, if this gets into a slum, what happens? India had very wisely at the very beginning, before anyone else, repatriated their, the, the, the few people they had in, in China that were Indian citizens that were there on business. They had shut the border to, Chinese, to, the, to the Chinese. They had, um, they had um, revoked the visas of Japanese and Koreans. This sounds very draconian and very maybe racist in a way, but mm-hmm. this is what they did. They had allowed the virus essentially, which moved from Asia to Europe, Brooke, to skip them and go to, go to Iran, then go to Europe, how did India, why is India now under the same lockdown that Western Europe and the U.S. is? Because they allowed uh, Europeans and Americans to bring the virus back to them. So, um, mm. again, I, I think it's because of how we interact with everybody. That's, that's a byproduct of empire. 
that we got it from both sides. Our first case was in Seattle. That came from the Far East. But then we've had all these cases um, on the East Coast that have come from Europe. Um, I, myself, was a little concerned that I might have had it very early on because I went to a conference with Europeans um, that I should not have gone to and a bunch of people had already pulled out of. And I went to it kind of recklessly the, the, the last week of February. And then the first week of March got sick and thought, oh, my goodness, there were Italians there. There were people from Milan at this conference. Mm-hmm. What was I doing? And then, obviously, here in Florida, because of the cruise ship industry, um, we've been very susceptible. Well, when you're in South Florida, which is – your situation in South Florida is different than my situation in Central Florida. I, I mean, we're only – what four hours apart going down the uh, uh, turnpike, but our situation with regard to uh, who's who's getting infected and how many people are getting tested and showing up as positive, it, it's totally different. It's night and day, and now Dade County is being held up as possibly the new um, after New York. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, and unfortunately, uh, it started with uh, with uh, with Bolsonaro coming to Miami and, and, and infecting or his entourage infecting uh, uh, our, uh, the mayor of Miami, of the city of Miami, Francis Suarez. That's that's that was the first case in Dade County. Broward County's first case was from a cruise ship uh, that stopped in Port Everglades. And actually, uh, uh, Mike Pence ran down here to his credit. Uh, obviously not a fan of his, but ran down here, did a press conference with the governor, said we got to beat this back, and then they didn't do anything. The local government here, which is run by Democrats, uh, waited six days after Pence and DeSantis were in town to start imposing uh, um, significant restrictions. Uh, that was a Saturday. They didn't do anything until the following Friday, which I, I didn't get. It's a Dade County's credit. They began locking down the second war as was uh, – with diagnosis, especially because it's someone of that, that significance. The county mayor, Carlos Jimenez, is also a Republican. Uh, I think did a pretty good job. I would say he, along with uh, uh, the Jacksonville mayor, Lenny Curry, have been the two standouts in the state in an otherwise very, very um, bleak picture of both Republicans and Democrats working their responsibilities to, to the public good. Uh, in this, Maybe the agriculture commissioner, Nikki Free, the Democrats, maybe she's uh, – uh, her opposition to DeSantis, maybe that stands out. So maybe we add her to that list. But they're really only three public officials I can think of that have really covered themselves with any kind of credit. Uh, Curry, of course, unfortunately, wasn't able to control what was going on in the neighboring county. So St. John's County and Nassau County uh, and Volusia and Flagler didn't put any restrictions. So people from Jacksonville said, okay, uh, uh, Curry's shutting everything down here. Um, Let's just go to St. To, 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 uh, to Augustine Beach. So let's just go to Orm- Ormond Beach. And brought lots of the virus, it seems like, back into Jacksonville, back into Duval County. So uh, in this, this system of federalism and local control, we're, we're, we're dependent on our neighbors. And so what I think happened with Dade County was, and this was really kind of um, the fault of Ron DeSantis, was Dade County and Broward County had cases very early on. Um, the first week of March. The rest of the state, like your area, Central Florida, was relatively unaffected. I thought at that point DeSantis needed to lock down South Florida in some manner. Say, okay, you won't do anything, right? But there are three 
counties, three metropolitan counties, which are have you know a, a more international travel, more commerce. Miami has become a major business and media center uh, in the Americas. Um, let's just shut down those places. Let's steal them off from the rest of the And didn't do any of that sort of thing. Palm Beach ends up now becoming kind of the epicenter for, for death in terms of, and, and they haven't tested nearly as many people's browser gates. So who knows how many cases there are there. Uh, they were late getting uh, testing open in Palm Beach County. It's only been about six days. They've had a full testing capability, or not even full testing capability. They don't have that yet, but even half uh, capacity testing ca- uh, capability. So, uh, yeah, Miami is now emerging as an epicenter of this, and I think that there's been too much um, too many local elected officials in both political parties, most of them are Democrats in the Miami area, Miami Fort Lauderdale area, um, pointing their finger at the state and federal government saying, oh, well, they haven't done anything for us, um, and waiting for them to make decisions. Now, um, DeSantis was horribly delinquent in making decisions, uh, probably worse than any, any uh, uh, big mega state governor other than Texas. Uh, there have been a few that have stood out, obviously. Uh, um, Mike DeWine, who's been in office for like 40 years, Republican from Ohio, has done a really good job. I think Ainsley um, did a good job, but he had obviously Seattle had the, the virus first. Uh, but I, I, don't, I think most politicians are not covering themselves in glory, and I would include most of the Democrats in that. I know it's very tempting for people on the left to say, oh, Trump and DeSantis are horrible, and Boris Johnson, well, you know, he's now in the hospital, so hope he gets well. But Boris Johnson did such a terrible job in the UK. But um, I, mm-hmm. I don't see much leadership from the Democrats. You know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Chuck Schumer, this, this was out there. This was, they were so busy uh, worried about Democratic primaries and manipulating this and that and trying to get everybody to drop out and, 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 and that they, they completely took their eye off the ball. Tom Perez had us hold unsafe primaries. Including here in Florida, maybe we'll talk about that in a minute, but unsafe primary in the middle of uh, this whole thing. And uh, I, I think, you know, credit to Joe Biden. I, I know he had talked about it early on, but remember at the time he wasn't the front runner and they only settled on him after Bloomberg blew up and Buttigieg blew up. So um, at the time, the candidates that they were running, Buttigieg and Bloomberg, I don't think ever even mentioned this thing. So Trump didn't have his eye on the ball, but neither did the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi didn't, didn't talk about it at all. MSNBC probably didn't even report on the pandemic. CNN did, to their credit, but it was sandwiched between political segments when they were you know, crashing Medicare for all and doing what they do, um, and doing whatever they did, could do to steer people toward the Democratic establishment. So I, uh, I, I do not have much rego- uh, time. Uh, for the people who are saying, oh, the Democrats would have done so much better. I am not sure about that. I think Trump has done poorly, but I don't know if the Democrats would have saved the day in this case. I think it's just a, a sign of where we are in American politics, how badly everyone has handled it. I absolutely agree. I feel like um, we're not seeing enough of, for instance, when Donald Trump was bombing Yemen, and uh, Brian Williams was, you know, waxing poetic about the uh, beautiful bombs falling on the, you know, Middle Eastern country. Uh, there, you saw the parties and the media kind of come together and, you know, back up Trump and say, 
you know, he's finally acting like a president or blah, blah, blah. You know, like, you know, they, they were open to working together with him to bomb another country. And right. as horrible as his response has been, it's actually gotten a little bit better in the last yeah. few days. And I, I know I've seen you tweet about, sorry about that. I know you, I've seen you tweet about the need for people to kind of come together and set some of this partisan infighting aside. And I think that, I think that our lives are depending on it. I mean, now, and I, and I don't know how they're going to get there. I don't see a way. I don't see the path forward. Do you? No, I mean, maybe again, I should, be watching, uh, I should go revert. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit, part of the reason I had my eye on COVID when others didn't is because I work in soccer and it had already spread to Europe and I watch a lot of the BBC, uh, BBC News and BBC World was all over it from late January. But um, now during this pandemic, I've really had my TV permanently on CNN and CNN never has mm-hmm. Republicans on, okay? Let's just be honest. Mm-hmm. They only have Democrats on. They only have Democratic elected officials on. They only have Democratic news analysts, with the exception of the, like, the one or two Republicans they'll bring on to beat up on, right? So uh, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's not quite as bad as I think it is, but uh, every CNN uh, show is – there's good information from Sanjay Gupta and other doctors, but then there's inevitably the bashing of Trump and Republican governors that keeps its way into what is supposed to be public health, public uh, service news coverage. Um, so maybe I, I, I don't. Maybe it's because I watch CNN. I don't see any way we get there where the, where we, we depoliticize this. Now, granted, I'm told by people who watch Fox that they're just as bad the other way. That Fox is like the the, the mirror, the uh, opposite of CNN. So um, it's not that the Republicans uh, are, are willing to work with the Democrats. Uh, this all having been said, I, I just still look back at Pelosi now wanting to have an opening an investigation of um, uh, of this and Schumer not only uh, not being quite honestly positioning themselves at times to the right of the Republicans in order just to trip up Trump or trip up a Republican governor. And so um, what we've seen from the Democrats in Congress the last, uh, last three weeks, since this really started in earnest, three and a half weeks, is you know, just sort of kind of flexible ideology, uh, no desire to really solve the problem um, unless they can kind of clamp down on political energy. So, so you know, they, they, uh, they love Jeff Bezos. We know this. The Democratic establishment loves him. Um, the, the progressive left doesn't, as you talked about at the beginning, and, and nor, does, uh, nor do most Republicans, right? So there's more unity on the issue of Amazon between the left, those of us on the left, and the Republicans. Then you talk about Medicare for all. Now we're in this position where um, Trump, I, I, I don't trust him at all, but he seems more open to the idea than the Democratic establishment. Why is this? It's pretty simple. Uh, Trump is corrupt. He's funded by oligarchs. He's funded by uh, bad forces out there in the world. He is, but he is not as dependent on money from the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical companies as the Democrats are, the establishment of the Democratic Party is. So now you have all these weird kind of ideological things where 
um, if you are a progressive and you are concerned about beating this pandemic and you are concerned about um, protecting workers and people from um, unsafe working conditions at the most um, at the most unsafe time we've had on the home front since, since World War One in a hundred years. Um, unfortunately, you cannot put your faith in the Democratic Party anymore because they're not going to do it. You can't put your faith in the Republicans either, but um, that's where we're at. So will people work together? No. And the last point I want to make on this is for the Democrats now, the Democratic establishment, everything is political. Everything is about um, narrative. Everything is about creating uh, a reason to have those donors throw money at you so you can run television ads or you can, uh, you can run a candidate, et cetera. The amount of anti-Trump ads being run by Democratic PACs or Democratic Align PACs, I don't know if it's Mike Bloomberg's money or Tom Steyer's money or who's behind all this, that are running in the middle of news programs on CNN is blowing my mind. And that's really what sent me over the edge on this issue was, okay, I dislike Trump as much as the next guy, and I think he's a horrible human being. But uh, we just need to calm down and chill out for a couple of weeks, work together, and then the campaign can resume on May 1st or June 1st, okay? But the Democrats, in their mm-hmm. desire to, to end the contest, basically um, are doing this, as I've talked about, and also force those primaries to be held on March 17th because they were trying to get Sanders to drop out of the race then so that way they could – they could finish the contest off. They didn't care about what was going on in the country and what the, the public health risk was. And I, I guess my final point on that is we had several poll workers here in the state of Florida on March 17th that were infected because we held a primary because, um, and, and again, I know DeSantis didn't stop the primary, but because Tom Perez very uh, defiantly wanted to hold those contests because they had a political goal in mind, not because they had any sort of interest in the American people in mind. So that's, that's where I am on it, unfortunately. Well, and we're getting ready to see that in, play out in Wisconsin again. Let's, um, Cardiff, let's circle back and do a discussion of uh, uh, convention, you know, what, what goes on in a convention, because I, I think that's the, the, the next thing that uh, people need to be thinking about is, you know, what do, what does either Biden or Bernie do at a convention with their delegates? What is the argument for staying in? What is the argument in terms of having leverage? What does leverage mean in a convention? I think there's a lot going on there that is pretty esoteric that um, that could use some unpacking. I think for um, most people. But I want to thank you for coming on and, and talking about this. This was really enlightening and good to kind of have some framework within which to, you know, to kind of view what's going on right now. It's a really good start. And uh, and I really thank you for it. Great. Oh, thank and you. And people, and... Oh, sorry. Catch Cardiff catch on a the com, which is uh, the, the blog, and it's the Florida Squeeze. And uh, how can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at KKFLA737. And also uh, the Florida History Podcast, uh, look for it on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google or Overcast, wherever you get podcasts. We actually did a, 
a show on the 1918 influenza and uh, particularly in Florida. And, and we had uh, 4,000 deaths in Florida that were reported from that. And Florida was a smaller state then, population-wise, much smaller. I'm fearful we're going to blow past that with this coronavirus, unfortunately. Wow. Wow. Okay. So until next time, Cardiff, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you. we'll talk again real soon. All right. Thank you. So we've got Rick Spizak with an interview. Rick Spizak is, of course, reporting from the road. Um, He is doing the exciting RV lifestyle right now, um, more exciting than I'm sure he signed up for. But he took some time out to do a fabulous conversation with Professor Wendy Lindley, longtime friend of the show. Please enjoy. Good morning. Good morning, Professor Lee. How are you today? I am I'm standing. There you go. There you go. It's uh, uh never never a bad time to call on a philosopher. Uh we rely on those who shape thought, who analyze logical behavior, who who work hard every day to try to understand what uh, society means to all of us. Uh, because most people rush around without a lot of thought to the big picture. So my dear professor and colleague in uh, analyzing human behavior and society at large, uh, I, I have a dozen questions, but I'm going to ask you first. What What's a foremost on your mind today? Uh, well, um, here we are on another beautiful day in the apocalypse um <laughs> and i i i am mostly like like you know lots and lots and lots of us out here um at least lots of us teachers out here at honestly what at, what at any level from kindergarten through postgraduate work um i'm trying to keep my classes upload online. Um, I, some folks have a lot of experience teaching online. Um, I have generally refused uh, to teach online because it's just difficult to really uh, execute the Socratic method in any meaningful way um, online. But man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. And I, I guess if I had any one thought that I think I would start and end with, um, it's I am staying home and I am staying home because it's abundantly clear to me that the more and the more of us who just stay home so that we are not exposed to COVID-19 the more likely it is that the people who might have to take care of us if we get sick, um, those really, really heroic first responders, 
um, and that includes everyone who works in a hospital or any med- medical facility, or for that matter, any veterinary facility or dental facility, right? All those folks who might have some part in taking care of us if we get sick, we owe it to them to stay home, to protect ourselves so that we can protect them. Very, very good, uh, very good point, very important point. I, I do want to go back to the educational aspect. I have a a little experience in that same vein myself. I have been sure. a, a teacher who has avoided, uh, uh, actively avoided teaching online. I think mm-hmm. there's, it interferes too much with that direct contact. I enjoy that give and take. I enjoy the vitality of a live interaction with another human being. I think there is nuance that you take, mm-hmm. even when you're not directly one-on-one with a student, looking at their reaction, looking at their reaction to the other students, all yeah. of that body language and yep. poise, if you will, sure. has has an important part to play, especially when you're talking about complex subjects, uh, philosophy in your case, and <laughs> crazy software in mine. Let me ask you another question, again, along the educational vein. Now, we're we're clearly not going to see what we might call traditional graduations this year, yeah. mm-hmm. and we are seeing an evolution uh, that that is literally forcing the educational institutions to evolve much faster than shall we charitably say they're accustomed to. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd call it evolve. <laughs> uh, I might call it survive. Okay. A trip over their own feet, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But but it certainly does uh, find those of us who are working within educational paradigms, uh, we, we have to end up being part of that guiding force because while we're on the front lines interacting with the students, trying to meet their needs and trying as best we can to still accomplish the goal, which is passing on information stimulating thought and discussion, and helping students to complete, as we might say, that complex process of acquiring new knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. What, When you teach your classes now, um, what kind of new tactics are you using to try to keep students engaged that might otherwise be the, the, the student sitting in the back of the class staring off? Yeah. So... It, for lots of us, including me, right, because I had never taught online before, um, this has been a, a really substantial learning curve. Um, and it isn't because I can't become rel- relatively savvy with the technology. It's it's really been about figuring out what I can use to the very best, most interactive advantage possible. And so, it, and I can really only speak to my own experience. I, I have online conversations with colleagues, but that's still pretty limited. Um, so what I what I what I've done, and that's all I can I can really speak to, is I tried to put several different kinds of things in front of my students. So I have online um, in real time discussion sections during what would have been our ordinary class time for every class 
every week. And what I post for that discussion section is a really substantive set of notes along with links to all of the material that would have been relevant for that class day. And part of what's been just a practical difficulty for us in the Pennsylvania state system is that we went out on spring break before our campuses went online, before they closed. So a lot of our students maybe didn't take their books with them, right? So we have to replace all that, right? They go to they went to the Florida beaches, right? And they didn't take their books with them, right? And we also, because we we teach the students of the working classes. Um, I have homeless students. I have students whose family members are dying now in Pennsylvania. And get, reaching students who have maybe really intermittent internet access, right? Students whose parents are home who have one computer in their family, right? These are not wealthy kids. These are the middle and the lower middle class kids, right, that I'm really devoted to educating. And they may have one computer. They may be trying to navigate my class from their cell phones, <laughs> you know, um, and they may have intermittent Absolutely. access there. And so the idea has been to do the best I can to reach as many of them as I can in as many sensible, easily accessible ways as I can every day. So that's been a combination of access to online discussion sections. Some of them have, have access to that during class time. Some of them don't. Some of them are still trying to work, right, or, and have to work in order to make their tuition if we get to come back in the fall, right? So in addition to that, I've been recording um, lectures, audio lectures. I, I cannot bring myself to do video lectures. I just feel like, so, like I'm doing, I've gone full on podcast, (laughs) (laughs) full on podcast, right? So audio lectures. um, And I've been trying to make those as straightforward, but as animated and as interesting as possible. I record them in 12, roughly 12 to 15 minute segments. And there's four to five segments in any set, right? So they can listen to them, they can re-listen to them, they're in the order of the text, right? I make sure that I um, upload the audio lecture so they're, look, they're listening to the lectures while they're looking at the, at the outline, at the notes for the class, and they have lots of links to the material. And I have absolutely harassed um, publishers um, to make my students' books available for free online. Um, I've used sources like Vital Source that makes that where I can get some of my materials free to my students, but I've also just harassed folks at Wadsworth, at Cengage, at wherever, at wherever <laughs> that I where I can get because many of these students just have paid for their books already, right? They should not have to pay for them twice, and they should not have to pay for online access to these books, right? They pay for that already. They don't have that kind of discretionary income, especially now their parents may be laid off, right? They, they may be, they're probably laid off, right? These are the kids who are working at Burger King, right? They're not working, right? So the, the idea is to make as many resources as available to them as I can for free. I, I've got one kid 
I've got one kid who is trying to do the course who is living in his car. So he's living in his car. I mean, and that just breaks my heart, right? And I, and I can't fix that. Um, but he's trying. And so if he's trying, I'm trying. I, uh, you, you have my sympathy and my uh, collegiality on that. I have, uh, I have two homeless students myself. And since I'm in the difficult position of teaching technology, uh, I know full well that yeah. these students don't have access to high-speed Internet connections. They can't uh, simultaneously video cast while taking notes and working on the, their computers in this uh, complex, expensive software that they would yeah. otherwise be given and be made available at the school facility. Yeah, right. But uh, uh, even in Florida, uh, the <laughs> governor has finally come around to the fact that uh, by by business as usual, we are spreading the disease. And that's, mm-hmm. that's an inescapable fact mm-hmm. that Spin and Fox cannot prevent. Fox um, would be sued out of existence for having spread false hope for having entertained conspiracy theories. I regard Fox News, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and Rush Limbaugh, um, who's not on Fox, but on the EIB as accomplices to manslaughter. You know, I, I, uh, I, I hate to, uh, to bash what passes for Democrats, uh, but I have to say we had a couple, what, millionaires or billionaires uh, ostensibly offering their leadership to this country, where the hell are they? Yeah, no, where? Yeah, where? Where? Where, is where the I, hell are they? Yeah, uh, I, I don't hear Where's about Bloomberg? the. Uh, yeah, I don't hear about Bloomberg's uh, purchasing ventilators or even masks. For God's sakes, I don't hear Steyer yeah. stepping up to the plate mm-hmm. when our ostensible federal government has told the states to fight among yourselves for the scraps yeah. of ventilators. Which, which is uh, obscene. I regard that as just as just an obscenity um, <laughs> that that we don't have a national and nationalized policy and strategy for fighting the coronavirus. Um, and you know, when you look at the maps and you see what states don't even have stay-at-home orders as of this morning. There are still 10 states, um, Nebraska, what, North and South Dakota, Wyoming. Um, 10, I think Mississippi has one now. But there's still 10, 10 without a stay-at-home order. Uh, Pennsylvania only um, moved to enforce Governor Wolf, and this is a Democrat, only moved to enforce a full state stay-at-home order day before yesterday. I, I don't know what he thinks. Maybe he thinks us out here in the rural communities are somehow immune or that the population is so scattered we won't infect each other. That that thinking is absurd and absurdly dangerous. You know, I, I do want to ask you to um, consider something with me. When society, when social groupings become detrimental to health. Mm -hmm. 
lesson does that say? What does that tell us? It, what does that change in the human social creature? It's going to change us, at least if we're intelligent, because this is not the last time. It, this is not the last time, even in in the lifetime of of of, of you and of you and me. I, I'm 60, right? I I will see this again. I might see this again as early as November. Um, yeah. it, it ought to tell us. And, and now I'm I'm putting on my environmental philosopher hat um, that our actions with respect to particularly what we consume, the ways in when in which we manufacture food, not only but especially animal bodies for consumption, right? And I realize that the coronavirus, like most recent viruses, have arisen um, in the the wild animal markets or from wild animal consumption. But nonetheless, the the very way we are making it more possible for viruses to become transmitted, zoonotic viruses to become transmitted from non-human animal host to human host, clearly and demonstrably being accelerated by climate change. The evidence for this has been on the wall for well more than a decade. And the evidence is not just about transmission, but virulence. So we have, right, when, when we say something like, well, you know, President Trump you know, isn't isn't to blame um, for the appearance of COVID-19, right? And in some really shallow, superficial way, that's that's true. But there's in in a much deeper and more significant way, Trump and his predecessors and Xi Jinping, right? And every government and corporate CEO that has participated in the acceleration of greenhouse gas emissions um, through factory farming and through gas and oil production is part of the cause of the transmission of viruses from non-human animal hosts to human beings because they are responsible for creating the fragile climactic and um, ecological conditions that make it more possible and more virulent and more enduring. And uh, in, in, a, in a real devil's bargain tag team sort of sense, uh, the corporate profit-driven medical system sure. is even a worse accelerator. Is that ironic or what? We 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 in the United <laughs> States, right? Under the under the um, just sort of dastardly tutelage of Donald Trump, are hell bent for leather to leave the acquisition and distribution of critical life saving medical supplies to the free market, right? To the profiteers in the free market among medical suppliers, among corporations in general, even if they're, you know, they're GM and they're transitioning to making masks, 
what we leave it to the to exactly that economic system that is itself directly responsible for the destruction of both planetary and atmospheric resources that generate the very conditions for the next pandemic. How do we not see that? Well, obviously, we can't afford socialism, could we? Clearly, the state has no obvious need to participate in health care, does it? <laughs> and that that ultimately leads to the dark irony that it's red states that don't have stay-at-home stay orders, and it's the social democracies right, of Europe, for example, Norway or Denmark or Sweden, who may be able to, as it were, flatten the curve more quickly simply because they are the socialized democracies whose national governments, A, value human life over money, and B, have taken um, aggressive measures very early on um, in order to to combat the coronavirus because they value the lives of their citizens right over over the the profiteering of, of corporations. Yes, uh, thank God that we've been protected from socialism. Uh, <laughs> an odd teeming of uh, the coronavirus in our in our annual discussions of, of uh, medical care. Uh, through the state. Well, um, we want to talk about freedom. I, I keep I keep actually thinking a lot about the excellent um, philosopher Hannah Arendt, who talked about the difference between freedom to like freedom to gather in groups more more of more than ten, right, or more than two, right. But she also talked about freedom from freedom from devastating disease for which there is no current vaccine, right, or even treatment, right? Freedom from hunger, freedom from destitution. We like to talk in this country a lot about the freedom to part, but we forget that the freedom from part provides a a necessary existential condition for the freedom to. Absolutely. Let me ask you to turn to one more topic while in the last few minutes of our discussion today, which, by the way, I thank you for again, Professor Wendy Lindley. Uh, One more question. Uh, What impact, not just on the election, but what impact on democracy is what we see? I, I think that, I think I would phrase the question slightly differently. I think the question might be, what are we finding out about whether or not we ever were a democracy? And I think it's pretty clear that the answer to that question is no, not unless we think of our democratic freedoms solely in the very narrow um, sense of freedom to consume, freedom to consume uh, you know, at restaurants right now, freedom to consume um, all of the products that we have to just send away for now on on Amazon. Um, I think what we're discovering is that the very idea of democracy is made very, very fragile unless 
there are conditions, I would call these socialized conditions, that make the exercise of those freedoms possible. And that's just really another way of referring, say, to Hannah Arendt's notion of freedom from. If, if we cannot have some reasonable command over the conditions of our own health, right? That is a basic existential condition. If we can't have, if we don't have access to food, to clean water, to clean air, to decent shelter, then all of those other democratic freedoms are for naught, right? They are all just shallow, vacuous promises that are available only to the very few, right? Who might be able to escape the virus Right in in virtue of their 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 access to resources to which the rest of us have no access to, like testing, just for example, right or or the or access to a hospital a hospital, um, as we see county hospitals out in places like mine get ready to collapse under the pressure. Right, so I think what we're finding out is that our democracy is at least very fragile, and and possibly was not what we not what we thought it was. And I'd say that with great sadness. Well, I, I can only say that I, I'm so glad that our basketball players can get tested. <laughs> yeah, and our president. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I would love to, to continue this conversation sometime in the near future because I do want you to talk about the economic impact of the impact on the gig economy, the impact yeah. on uh, uh, the, you know, the very, very fragile shelter problem that, mm-hmm. that really hasn't been fed, met and hasn't and is only exacerbated. But Professor Wendy Lindley, I want to thank you so very much for giving us some time today. Uh, I know, being the dedicated educator that you are, you have so much work to do in preparation for the next. Uh, internet-mediated class, and and I do want to leave you with one more question. I have to wonder, since our society, with its fragile grasp of of any kind of tenuous uh, lifestyle in this country, if if we have internet problems, I can only begin to guess what will happen. Thank you so much for your time. I hope to talk to you again soon. Be safe, my friend, and thank you for the good work that you do. You as well, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Spizak with Wendy Lynn, Wendy Lynn Lee, longtime friend of the show, fabulous uh, conversation there. Uh, let me play this. Janine's intro. Cooperating. I'm getting really bad audio quality. How are you doing, Janine? I'm fine, Brooke. Uh, basically, we're going to continue with this reporting on COVID-19 and under the moniker of hashtag not, not dying for Wall Street. Uh, once again, this morning, the mainstream corporate media, this time it was Face the Nation with Nora O'Donnell, 
has surpassed itself in terms of vapid content. This morning, we retreated to well-meaning but unneeded advice from yet another mental health expert. This expert advises us to wind down from our fight-or-flight response to this COVID-19 crisis. Now, if we have been told the truth about COVID-19 from the very beginning and actually had a consistent plan and implementation, uh, then those remarks would have been appropriate. Instead, we were told to calm down in the face of what can only be called out as negligent homicide. I'll say it again, negligent homicide at the hand of the Trump administration. We've been lied to regarding the danger of COVID-19, the testing apparatus, availability of the testing apparatus, and overall medical preparation. But face the nation would have us wind down. Sorry, no can do. That's appeasement. We're being told to calm down and appease the madman in the Oval Office as we're facing what can only be called a potential genocide via medical neglect. We don't need to calm down or practice yoga or breathe deeply. If you want to, you can, but we need a logical, consistent plan to address this crisis and that inc- and a plan that incorporates a mandatory lockdown for everyone except emergency personnel and followed by COVID-19 testing of all of every man, woman, and child, followed by free treatment, period. We don't presently have such a plan, and I'm going to discuss a few reasons why and also what needs to happen. Coronavirus is advancing, okay? And there was an article, this was an editorial in the New York Times on March 24th, actually, by the editorial board. And it was just titled, Coronavirus is Advancing, All Americans Need to Shelter in Place. Well, you know, the only thing I have to say to that is, duh. But again, sheltering in place isn't always available for people. There are minimum wage workers that, you know, no matter what you hear in the media, if they don't show up for work, they will be fired. So basically, you know, what the New York Times editorial board was saying as of March 24th is that, you know, Trump needs to call for a two-week shelter-in-place order as part of a coherent national strategy. Now, here's the thing. That is a good – and then the idea being that governors would follow his request. Okay, that sounds nice. It's a strategic move, and it that strategic move would allow time for developing and disseminating test kits, ventilators, meds, et cetera. Also, that time could be used to streamline data gathering regarding which regions and people represent the most dangerous hotspots. Again, that's fine. The problem is that we're past, here in the U.S., we're past the point of containment. All right? We just are. Uh, South Korea, <coughs> excuse me, pushed, um, I take a drink of water here, pushed, con- basically, South Korea did the right thing. They had mandatory lockdown. They tested everyone. It took them some time. And they got they were able to level it out. We haven't done that. And and not only have we not done that, any calls for social distancing or even shelter in place have been really up till now voluntary voluntary. And so and then we saw the spring, you know, kids going for spring break you know, crowded on Florida beaches and endangered everyone. The fact is the New York Times editorial board is, they went further, not suggesting that Trump be given the authority to order a national lockdown. They're urging, they were urging him to use the bully pulpit responsibly. 
frankly, I think that's an exercise in futility. Trump is unable to use that bully pulpit responsibly. As far as I'm concerned, Trump has bungled this crisis so badly that he should be forced out of office right now as he is presently, at the very least, criminally misfeasant. Now, Trump's own health advisors have warned him that the worst is yet to come, and especially due to the inconsistent and incompetent response to this biomedic, and yet he is not following what they're saying. Here's the deal. The U.S. could have COVID fatalities of more than 2 million people, not up to 2 million, more than 2 million people could die because of COVID, and yet Trump fails to care. This is far worse than 9-11, and yet we are un, utterly unable to mobilize. Now, this is something that we're, we're painfully aware of. We've discussed in our series, Not Dying for Wall Street, about patent trolls blocking available testing devices and meds, about public financing of these meds. You know, why should Gilead, for instance, be able to monopolize remdesivir when it was basically created on the public dime? And now we're really talking about the fact that even though the GOP loves to talk about federal powers, federalism as basically a coherent risk is virtually non-existent regarding this crisis. We need to coordinate a national plan, and Trump's, the GOP of Trump has failed us miserably. In fact, now, because Trump basically told the governors, you're on your own, go find your own supplies in the marketplace, it's led to a bidding war between states, and that hurts everyone, everyone except those that are selling these devices. And we have an attorney general, Mr. Barr, who wants to push for more presidential power. Trump doesn't need more power. He needs to be replaced with someone who will address the emergency responsibly. This isn't about partisanship. This is about an incompetent executive who has utterly failed us in basically this bio menace. Trump had the Defense Production Act that he could have used to speed up procurement of diagnostic kits and other vital medical equipment, but the GOP of Trump has treated the national stockpile like its own private piggy bank. This is inexcusable. There's a shortage of medical supplies that are rivaling levels of a third world nation. Why? We don't need any more, according to New York Times, and I agree with them on this one, we don't need no, any more daily task briefings. They're useless. We need action, and we're not getting it. What, with possibly more than 2 million fatalities due to COVID-19, where is the accountability? And we go a little further, and we find out that doctors and nurses and even military personnel, i.e. Captain Crozier, have been threatened with discipline and discipline if they dare tell the public the truth. Now, we've got the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, who in uh, just this past March 27th uh, reported an article saying, I'm sorry, titled Coronavirus Overview, How Political Ideology and Governmental Incompetence Can Kill You by John Meckley. And there's a small part of it. Basically, you know, we have certain areas in the world, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, they have had previous experience with a similar coronavirus disease, SARS, and they've responded effectively to this. But here in the United States, there's been an utter failure to plan for this instance and respond. And we're going to be talking about that in future reports. I have additional access. Um, 
but but again, one of the reasons we're so unprepared is because of budget cuts to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and the National Security Council. That's crippling our ability to fight this crisis. And these were repeated budget cuts. And this was reported by The Hill. So it's not, quote, it's Mr. Trump says in a very juvenile statement, fake news. Uh, basically, Washington Post also reported that there was a disbanding of the National Security Council Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense. Again, totally irresponsible. And the Trump administration must be held accountable for this. Not just Mr. Trump himself, but all of those lieutenants, every member of the GOP, every member of his cabinet, every advisor. Now, here we have also the doctors and nurses are being silenced. And this is something that is really very frightening. We know, because the word is leaked out, that there is a dire shortage of PPE, or personal, personal protection equipment. There aren't enough respirators. In fact, the respirator masks are in such shortage that the CDC itself told nurses, told Nurses United, which is one of the ones leading the charge, that they should use bandanas. I wish I were kidding about this. Uh, there are also practices where nurses are told that they do have an N95 respirator to clean it down with alcohol, which actually eradicates the protection, and they put it in a plastic bag airtight, and they reuse it. So, again, patients, doctors, nurses, everybody is being endangered. And you would think this is obvious malpractice on the part, not of doctors and nurses, because they're trying to do their jobs, but on the part of medical administrators and insurance companies, and yet they're being threatened. So um, there was this thing in, in Daily Cause, uh, Aviator Doc, and, you know, once again, being talked at being basically talking about how they have healthcare workers are being threatened with disciplinary action, even termination, if they speak up out about the lack of PPE, personal protection equipment, that they're forced to work under. And that is, and this guy said, this is what corporate medicine is like, end quote. And that is true. You know, back when I was a child, doctors worked for themselves. This wouldn't have happened, but it's happening now. And, you know, once again, we have this dire situation. Hospitals are using HIPAA regulations according to many doctors and nurses, to prevent them from disclosing any sort of information about the lack of protection equipment. And they're trying to claim that, well, doctors and nurses can't say anything, they can't blow the whistle because it violates patient confidentiality. One has absolutely nothing to do with the other. They're not talking about individual patients. Um, you know, once again, this is from Nurses United. Laura Clausen for Daily Cause Labor. She's also a nurse at United. Hospitals to doctors and nurses, shut up about equipment shortages or you're fired. And so, again, Bloomberg has reported about this. Um, and the, in an article saying hospital tells doctors they'll be fired if they talk to the press. Uh, an emergency room doctor in Washington State was fired after uh, doing a newspaper interview and the interview was about the lack of protective gear and testing and inadequate protective gear. Um, NYU Lagone Health told workers that talking to media without permission, quote, could cost them their jobs. In Chicago, a nurse was fired. Excuse me, I lost my place here. 
for emailing her colleagues. Remember, they're talking to media. She just emailed her colleagues about wanting better protective gear, and she was fired. Um, a North Carolina doctor running two Facebook groups for physicians told Bloomberg, quote, I'm hearing widespread stories from physicians across the country, and they are all saying, we have these stories that we think are important to get out, but we are being told by our hospital systems that we are not allowed to speak to the press, and if we do so, there will be extreme consequences, end quote. Uh, Min Lin, a, the Washington doctor, uh, a Washington doctor who was fired, said, quote, our oath is to do no harm. Um, quote, I spoke out for patient safety, and as a result, I got terminated, end quote. Uh, and then it's not just patient safety. Doctors and nurses are being diagnosed with COVID at escalating rates because, again, they don't have the PPE, the personal protection equipment they need. So basically, they're unwitting super spreaders. And again, why, you know, why have we been denied this news? Why did it have to leak out? Because once again, these hospitals are run for profit. Um, Glenn Cohen, a Harvard Law School professor, who is also the director, excuse me, of Harvard's Bioethics Center, was quoted saying, quote, is good and appropriate for healthcare workers to be able to express their own fears and concerns, especially when expressing that might give them better protection. Uh, so, why, so why are hospitals trying to shut them up? Because, quote, when healthcare workers say they are not being they are not being protected public gets very upset at the hospital system, end quote. There was another case, a spokesperson for the Washington State Nurses Association said, quote, hospitals are muzzling nurses and other healthcare workers in an attempt to preserve their image, end quote. This is, uh, there was an article written by basically uh, Nurses United, and again, quote, hospitals tell doctors they'll be fired if they speak out about lack of gear. I mean, the sad part is if you go to the hospital, you're in more danger, it seems. And this is the Washington State Nurses Association. Ming Lin, who is an emergency room physician in Washington State, um, was fired because he gave an interview to a newspaper about a Facebook post. The interview was with the Seattle Times. Uh, the interview detailed basically Minglin's concern about inadequate protective equipment and testing. Um, so again, it's the same stuff over and over again. And, you know, absolutely criminal. It just is. There's There are PPE shortages all over the country, and it isn't just here in the U.S. There are similar threats being made to medical personnel in the U.K., in uh, the EU, in China, in fact, the doctor who first warned about COVID, who ironically passed away, was charged by the Chinese government for speaking out. This is a corporate, a, uh, corporate criminality. That's the only way you could describe this. Uh, one of the nurses said after, quote, after examining a hypoxic woman in her 50s with no medical problems, who likely has COVID, I had to clean my single-use face shield that I've worn for the past three days with disinfectant used to clean hospital beds since we ran out of sanitizing wipes. This is what's going on. Um, oh, wow. There's a little more here. Yeah, NYU Langone Health uh, employees received a notice Friday 
Espinosa from Campy Lewis, who's the Executive Vice President of Communications. And basically, it said that anybody who spoke to the media without authorization would be, quote, subject to disciplinary action, including termination. It's Kathy Lewis, Executive Vice President of Communications for NYU, New York University, Langone Health. Jim Mandler, um, a spokesman for the same group, NYU Langone Health, said the policy, again, was to protect confidentiality, quote, because information is constantly involving. What utter nonsense. We're not talking about individual patients. We're talking about the fact that patients are in more danger being in the hospital than out because, again, there isn't enough protective gear. This is criminal. Uh, here's some more. Charles Prosper, who's the chief executive of Peace Health, St. Joseph's Medical Center, Northwest Network, uh, where Ming Lin worked in Bellingham, said that Lin was, quote, publicly critical of the hospital's readiness. And Lin's contract was through Team Health. Once again, these professionals are being punished for basically doing what they're supposed to do. Um, let's see, Nisha Mehta is a 38-year-old radiologist in Charlotte, North Carolina, runs two Facebook groups for physicians, around 70,000 members. She's had numerous requests from healthcare workers that want to get their stories into the public arena. Okay, this is absolutely criminal. In The Atlantic, there was a big article, March 24th, titled All the President's Lies About the Coronavirus, an unfinished compendium, compendium of Trump's overwhelming dishonesty during a national emergency. He has told so many lies about this, and, and this is the criminal part about it. When you either overtly lie or withhold critical information regarding a highly communicable, communicable fatal disease, then knowing full well what will happen, then yes, you are guilty at the very least of criminal misfeasance, possibly malfeasance. Uh, you know, once again, this is negligent homicide. Trump is, he has lied about the nature of the virus. And, and again, it isn't just Trump. That's the thing. This is all the advisors too, all right? They should be speaking out whether they're just, Jobs are online or not. He blamed the Obama administration. Uh, coronavirus testing. This is a good one. On March 6th, the claim, quote, anybody that needs a test, get a test. We, they're, they're there. They have the test, and the tests are beautiful, end quote. The truth is that our testing abilities are very limited. There's a lack of testing kits. Alexis Madrigal and Robinson Meyer um, reported in the Atlantic Let's see now. Um, you know, Trump made that claim one day after his own vice president admitted, quote, we don't have enough tests today to meet what we anticipate will be the demand going forward, end quote. Um, Wednesday, March 11th, Trump said private health insurance companies had, quote, agreed to waive all co-payments for coronavirus treatments, extend insurance coverage to these treatments, and to prevent surprise medical billing, end quote. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> The truth is insurers agreed only, only to absorb the cost of testing. And they'd waive co-pays and deductibles for getting the test. That's it. The federal government has not required insurance companies to cover follow-up treatment. And that was reported KSF private insurance brief. Um, 
you know, once again, there are too many lies to keep track of all this. It, it is downright evil. You know, taking the pandemic seriously on uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, Trump said, quote, I've always known that this is a real, this is a pandemic. I thought it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. I've always viewed it as very serious, end quote. The truth is he has repeatedly downplayed how dangerous COVID-19 is, um, and, you know, he called criticism of his handling as a hoax, as reported by The Atlantic. He's compared the coronavirus to the common flu, as reported by Al Jazeera. Um, so, I mean, once again, he can't keep, you know, if you're going to be a liar, you really have to have a good memory, which he doesn't have. <laughs> I, you know, he again, doesn't have the and, discipline and then, for that. He doesn't have the intellect for it, but the fact, in my opinion, but the mm-hmm. fact is that you also have medical professionals. The you know whether it's Dr. Fauci or even the uh, the Surgeon General. You know the, the the CDC is telling people to make face masks. Look, the fact is any professional worth their weight knows that there comes a time in your career especially if you're if you've pledged to do no harm if you're in one of the helping professions you come to a point where you have to make a very a very important decision are you going to tell the truth and risk your job or are you going to just shut up and the fact is you have a moral obligation to tell the truth professionals especially in the helping professions do have that 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 weight on them so there's more to this, and like I said, in the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking about how we have there, – there were plans in place. The Trump administration scrapped them, and the plans mimicked exactly what happened, which is odd, too. So, you know, right now, in conclusion, it, it is – and then we'll just kind of just chat. It's patently clear by now that Donald Trump, GOP of Trump, and by default, every member of his administration – has blood on their hands. Excuse me. <clears throat> it could be argued that Trump is guilty. I'm going to get there. Well, I, it could I be argued that Trump is guilty of... Go ahead. Well, I, I'm going to get to it. it it's, Trump is guilty of negligent homicide at the level of a mass genocide. All the factors are there. The mm-hmm. negligence, the lies, the, the COVID disease, and any action towards mitigating this disaster, but the deception goes farther. As healthcare organizations run by for-profit insurers have threatened doctors and nurses with severe discipline, including dismissal, they dare tell the truth about this mass negligence. Profits are being placed before people, and those who have attempted to silence medical professionals should also face professional censure and criminal prosecution. While Trump cannot cannot be blamed for the COVID-19 virus itself, he can and should be held accountable for the inept manner his administration in which they've responded. There is no excuse for this negligent homicide, which is the result of all these lies and obfuscations. To put it bluntly, the sad truth is, as nurses, sorry, nurses United said in a poster, "quote We're calling, we're called essential, because calling us sacrificial would just be too honest." End quote. So, what were you going to say, Brooke? I'm sorry, I just wanted to get through that. Well, the. Uh... We're being lied to, for sure. Do you have mm-hmm. 
a, a, a feeling about what it is that we're being lied about. Because I was talking earlier in the show about the um, uh, projected death and that mm-hmm. Trump said, oh, 100,000, and then I saw another, uh, uh, similar to what you Upwards were talking about, I saw another 2 million number. Do you think they're lying yeah. to us? I, 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 I feel like... I've I seen like figures feel around for the for the truth shaped holes in that. I, you know, and, I've, and, seen, I've seen yeah, I, I've seen figures that you know the U.S. as of 2018, the U.S. population is at about 370 million, and the figures are between 70 million and 100 to 150 million people will be infected with COVID. That's like half our population. And, you know, I don't just have a feeling. I have evidence. Okay, I couldn't get through it mm-hmm. all tonight. I have, and I'm going to be talking about it. I have evidence, including in, the, the, I think it was a report from the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists. They actually had downloaded a report that was not for public dissemination about this. And it's out there anyway, obviously. And it really deals with the fact that there were plans in play. Trump canceled them and you know the question is why well maybe he you know there's been also some accusations that the aid has been more generous to red states than blue states you know does he want enough people to die to ensure either his re-election or you know maybe even canceling the election i don't know it's a distinct possibility but I don't need feeling. I've got evidence, and a lot of it, and so do other people. And the fact is, very simply, that this has been bungled. This is a case, somebody else called it negligent homicide, and it is. I would just add to it, it is, this is negligent homicide on the level of a mass genocide, period. And any member of Congress, any governor, any, any hospitalist, anybody who refuses to fight this is also, at the very least, an accessory. We need our anger. We need to fight for our right to live because right now we're being denied that. You can't keep social distancing the rest of your life. And right now what we're dealing with is something that's out of control, and, yes, it's been bungled. It is the GOP of Trump's fault. And, yes, there's plenty of facts to back it up. Well, Janine, thank you so much for this report. And as always, I look forward to the next one. I I, I want to tell our listeners, too, that we didn't get to the Whitney Webb piece. I'm going to go ahead and do a an extra on that. And that's fine because I'm going to, I, I'm going to kind of put it together with some other more uh, mm-hmm. kind of out there stuff. But it follows along these lines. How are we being lied to? And where can we find the truth? Janine, we'll talk to you next week. And for everybody okay, else, for... thank you so much for being with us. And uh, just keep an eye on Stay safe. Wash your hands. And good stuff. Those guys are all great.
for that. It is hit and miss. It seems like BTR has different kinds of audio quality at different times and it's kind of a crapshoot. That was um, quite a good show. If you're still listening, I don't know what you're doing because it's just me yakking at this point. But we're going to do the uh, we're going to do the Whitney Webb piece which is All Roads Lead to Dark Winter and I have another special uh, segment that I want to add to that. And so we're going to get a little bit more out into the fringes of this COVID situation. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and drop that tomorrow. But for tonight, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.